when you create coalition districts, you create democratic seats, and they tend to be a little bit more open to what is possible. When your hands are on a Republican mouse, you're creating polarizing districts. That is part of the problem that we've had for the past 10 years. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My second full-time job out of college was in 1990 as a computer programmer for a redistricting consulting firm called Election Data Services. I learned a lot there about political data, and remarkably, that firm is still going, and the founder, Kim Brace, is my guest today. I don't know of anyone who has been in the world of reapportionment, redistricting, and election administration longer. I was very happy to have the chance to get his story, and I hope you will listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kim Brace at Election Data Services. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. TimePlots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Well, Kim, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. Uh, my name is Kim Brace, B-R-A-C-E or Kimball, or Hey You, or I answered all sorts of stuff, including Ms. Kimbrace mail. I do get that sometimes, too. So, um, <laughs> Which I do am, you prefer? Uh, Kim is fine. Yeah. Fine. As long as you can see my beard and it's not, uh, not female. I am president of a company called Election Data Services. Uh, we have been in existence since I started it in 1977. We're now almost getting to 50 years. This is our fifth decade of redistricting and work that we do with state and local governments, uh, usually. Those are our clients. They pay their bills. They may be slow sometimes, but they usually pay their bills, which is good. Um, and uh, they're always uh, interested in terms of what's going on. So we're uh, very attuned to what is happening particularly in the census and reapportionment and redistricting fields, as well as election administration. So all four of those are kind of all of our forte. And depending upon which time of the decade, depends on what, what we get involved with. Obviously, redistricting supposedly only happens in the years uh, one and two. But as you know, uh, I get involved with court cases and they never stop. So that keeps me focused on redistricting even in off, 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 off years. But that also gives me a chance to work with local governments in particular in terms of election administration things. 
making sure that they've got the boundaries that the state legislature has foisted upon them properly coded into their voter file and their street files. So we do a lot of work with that in helping the local governments get ready for the next election. We have been involved with uh, voting equipment. I was Al Gore's expert witness in Florida in 2000. And so we have been long associated with voting equipment. We've kept track of what kind of voting equipment is used in every single county in the country since 1986. So it provides us with a wealth of information as well as expertise uh, as it relates to that. To me, it's it's a very interesting area to have found a career in and a, built a company in. So I'm excited to talk to you more about it. And I probably should mention that I spent a year working for you back in around 1990. Uh, that is correct. And uh, learned a lot from that experience. And uh, Well, we, we learned a lot too, and we were thankful that you were involved with us. So it was great. Well, I was in my early 20s and not yet good at uh, being a great employee. Maybe I never have been, but <laughs> I met a lot of good people and learned good things and went on to grad school and thought a lot about redistricting there too. So it was an important year in my life. Um, I'm curious, like I, I remember uh, a little bit f- about your history from that talking to other people in the company then and you and, but, and I know you went to American for college, but tell me a little bit about how you grew up and what, what you studied there and how you came to launch a firm. I did go to American University. Let me go back a little bit earlier. I was uh, born in Denver, Colorado, moved to Beirut, Lebanon in the 19, early 1960s, uh, lived there. My father was manager of a television station over there um, and lived in Beirut for three years. Uh, so I did fifth and sixth and part of seventh grade in Beirut. Um, I was old enough to know what was going on and to see what was happening. It was a fascinating time in Beirut, as they used to call it, the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, it was a great place to, to live in. Uh, it was before all the bombing and the problems that they later had. But it was something that was a great opportunity. Um, it's not often you uh, walk along the sand uh, in the in front of your apartment building and stub your toe on something that you thought was a rock and you bent down and pulled out a Roman pot that was in the ocean. Um, It was full of Roman coins. So where else could you go in this world and find 2000 year old history um, right there under your toe? Um, It got me fascinated with history And then he got transferred to San Diego, California, where he was manager of a TV station down there um, through the 60s and 70s and 80s when he passed away. But I went to junior and senior high school in San Diego. That was a time of big revolution, if you remember, in the late 60s. And San Diego, in in, uh, the circles that my dad was in, uh, was very conservative. And so uh, I went looking for how far away could I get from San Diego to go to college. And that's why I went to American University in Washington, D.C. 
I was interested in um, journalism because of my dad's background. I worked at his station in, in high school. And so came back to AU as a journalism major and ended up realizing that I thought I probably knew a little bit more than some of my college professors, uh, given my background already. So in, in the true revolutionary style of the late 60s, I went uh, instead to political science. And I ended up uh, working uh, part-time at NBC Network News, uh, which was right down the street on Nebraska Avenue, which was convenient because you could walk there from AU. Ended up working there and um, uh, over the weekends and basically um, at the same time uh, was doing political science work and ultimately got a job as a researcher with the NBC elections unit for the 72 campaign. And so I got transferred up to New York, dropped out of school for a year and uh, was advance man for Chancellor and Brinkley and went around the country as a young kid of 22, uh, talking to people and getting background research so that when uh, Jack and David came into town for the primary on a Tuesday, they'd come in on Friday evening after the broadcast. And uh, I would sit with them late Friday evening, kind of going over what what I had learned for the last two weeks since I had been in the state for, for that long really looking at, you know, if they're interested in this story, you could see it over in these results in this part of the state. If you were concerned about youth vote, it would be over here. We'd look at where we'd have some information to help that storyline. It was a fascinating time. I discovered that Jack Chancellor was uh, very gracious and was interested in everything that was being said. David, on the other hand, was kind of predeposed, um, and I was trying to figure out what it was that caused uh, David Brinkley to, to not think about what we were providing to him. It turned out that I discovered that he had read David Broder's column that Friday morning, and uh, as such, his mindset was what David had talked about. This was before we really had good faxes and all that sort of stuff was able to get um, the NBC um, station in, in Washington, D.C. to fax me um, a copy of Broder's column so that I would know on Friday what was David Broder's, or David Broder's column and what was David Brinkley's ideas of where, where the co- conversation should go in this state. So it was kind of a fascinating uh, look at things but it meant that I was heavily involved with following politics. At the end of the 72 election year, um, uh, I wanted to stay with NBC, but uh, uh, Bud Lewis, the director, said, no, you need to go back to school. So I came back to American University and continued to work for NBC. I got a job at Congressional Quarterly uh, and covered Watergate for them. So from 73 to 75, worked for CQ. In 76, um, worked for a place called Plus Publications, where um, I uh, was again hooked up with my college professor, Dick Smolka, uh, to look at election administration. And I was associate editor of election administration. I always say that those three jobs I got fired from 
So if I couldn't work for somebody else, I needed to go do my own thing. I want to ask a couple questions about that background, which is super interesting. You didn't mention what kind of political interests you brought to from sort of your family forward. You and I both share an interest in sort of the, I don't know, the logistics part of politics, the data, the lines for the districts, the machines, uh, the people who have expertise in that sort of thing. What was the opening that you saw for that and how did you go about it? Because of my work with NBC and uh, as well as the internship I had, uh, surprisingly, I was an intern at the Republican National Committee back in 1970. And as such, um, during that internship, was involved with the recompilation of election results by congressional district. Since all the revolution of the one person, one vote, all the districts changed and trying to figure out what was the political leaning of those districts. So I had the information from 1972 to through the 60s for the current districts. And I ended up in 1976, went to a number of different labor unions and convinced them that if they'd give me X amount of dollars, whatever it was, I'm sure it wasn't very much, um, then I would be able to compile the data from 74 and 76 up to the congressional districts. That would be president, Senate, governor, those contests recompiled by the congressional district. And I'd have 10 years worth of data that would help analyze then the political leanings of every congressional district. And so uh, with that, um, labor ended up utilizing my information in preparation for the 78 election, saw the results of what we were showing and, and analyzing and liked it enough that they wanted me to do it again for 1980, which I did. That was how I started election data services for compiling of election results. So it was just you for a while? Um, it was me for a while, although um, uh, given my work at the Democratic National Committee, um, one of the other interns there was a guy by the name of Dean Plotnick. And Dean um, became my first employee. He and I were the ones that were compiling all these election results, county level, precinct level, all of that sort of stuff to compile this data set. So it got me involved in this whole area of data and data analysis. Um, and as such, uh, gave me an appreciation of election returns and geography. And in 1979, in doing one of the works that we were, had been doing and as a subcontractor with an entity that was working for the uh, Federal Elections Commission, um, we ended up compiling data for what kind of voting equipment was used in every single county as part of that work. Uh, one day um, when I was with the, uh, the head of the company that I was subcontractor with, he said, you know, it's, it's 1979 and another year there's this thing called redistricting going to be happening. He had uh, actually helped a professor, Stuart Nagel, develop the first automated redistricting software um, in the 1960s. He said, I've got this program, and 
I've got um, a staffer here that can write the code for it and make modifications. Why don't you work with Leo and see what you could do with it? Can you create something that we could end up selling to the states and locals government? So I did. We created a data set of Massachusetts. Uh, In 1979, they were projected to be losing a congressional seat. In putting together this data set for the automation, it meant that we had to create uh, what's known as a touch list. At the township level, that was real easy to do, 351 cities and towns in Massachusetts. We could know from a, a map which towns touched which other towns and vice versa, create that part of the data set. We had election returns by town. We had census estimates by town. So we could compile the necessary pieces and be able to turn on the program and let it decide the congressional districts. We did that. And as I said, uh, Massachusetts was due to lose a congressional seat. So um, we ran this a whole bunch of times. And every time it pointed towards one congressional district is the one most likely to lose. Um, we took this on the road to national conferences, state legislatures, conferences where state and local governments came to see what vendors were offering for redistricting. And so at one of their conferences, I was showing the results of this program and, and a press person walked up and was interested in what we had. And he said, so what was the district that you kept on saying is the one that would be eliminated. And I said, it's the 8th Congressional District of Massachusetts. And he said, do you know who is the representative of the 8th District of Massachusetts? And I said, no, I I actually don't know. He said, that's the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill. And so he wrote a big article that talked about this young tyke saying that the Speaker of the House of Representatives was going to be drawn out of his district in the next round of redistricting. Got a bunch of headlines, obviously. What it did also got is uh, within a, uh, about a week and a half, I got a phone call from the Speaker's office. The Speaker would like to talk with you. Would you come down to the Capitol building and we'd like to talk with you about what you found? So... Uh, you know, this this young tyke goes down. Tip O'Neill was very gracious, talked about politics being local, as he always did. But he said, you know, I, I think I'm going to be OK. Uh, and uh, sure enough, he was OK. They ended up taking out another congressman at that point in time. But it was kind of an early look at what was behind the scenes in terms of redistricting. And so that's what got me involved in the redistricting cycle. And we were heavily involved in 1980 and then 90 when you were on on board with us and continued with each decade with a new round of redistricting. It's an area of politics that has a lot more stories than people know about. Oh, yes. Who gets to keep what precinct in their district or doesn't and how those decisions are made. And I assume that 
that that's changed an awful lot with the increasing power of computers and the use of GIS and everything else. What was the redistricting like back in 1980? Um, in 1980, it was certainly a heck of a lot different than it is right now. In 1980, the biggest commodity in 1980 that we had was the Speaker's Office. The Speaker's Office in Illinois is a two-story office um, and as such has very large walls. And we could pin up census maps on the top of the second story going down to the ground and we would climb up ladders uh, every day um, we had acetate overlays over the census maps. Census maps showed the census tracts and the census blocks. Um, and we could uh, look towards what territory should be added to a, to a district. We did this day in, day out, because we would call out to the person that was down on the ground, you know, put census tract 3205 into District 6 or block group X or block Y and Z into a district. And they would code this up on a coding sheet. At six o'clock in the evening, we would stop the work on the mapping uh, in the speaker's office. And we would go over to the biggest mainframe that there was in Springfield, Illinois, because at six o'clock we could get onto uh, some of their key punching machines and we key punch all these coding sheets that we had drawn up during the day. At nine o'clock, the, the bank's computer, they had finished their work for the day. And so they turned the computer over to us. And we started the process of running these cards through to recompile the data and the census and the political data for every single one of the probably 180,000 blocks in the state of Illinois. Um, and the program would run all night long. We would come back at five o'clock in the morning. I'd have a big printout about two feet tall of all the results of this and the recompiling of the, of the data for the new districts. And I'd take that back over to the speaker's office and we'd do it all again that day and the next day and the next day and the next day. As such, we were basically creating like 10 to 15 plans the entire legislative session. It would take that long to do that in the olden days. Computers in, increased by 1990. We had the first PCs. We no longer had to work on mainframes. In 1990, in order to do Illinois, uh, we had to string together two PCs to get enough horsepower to process the state of Illinois. And 1990 is the year I worked for you. It was my sort of second programming job out of college. And I remember uh, like trying to process election returns from one format to another and watching geographers who were taking precinct maps that were on paper and matching them up with the census blocks in a GIS, that information being stored, I think it was like on optical drives at the time. It was such an interesting kind of view into politics and how things took place behind the scenes. But I want to go back just a little bit about this 
building of a company because at the same time that you're developing this expertise and uh, landing clients, you're running a business, right? You you said you'd hired Dean. I remember Dean was still there in 1990. What was happening with the business as you moved through the 80s and into the 90s? By the time I got there, you were, I don't know, you had 20-some employees and things were quite different than you and Justine. Uh, yes, that is true. Um, by the 1990 round of redistricting, I think we had upwards of 29 staff people. It was a whole different operation. I had all of you guys back in, in DC compiling data sets, and I was still out in the road. If you remember, I, I maybe showed up uh, Friday evening and, and saw you guys on Saturday and Sunday, maybe, or something like that. And, and then I'd go back to flying to whichever state I was involved with. Um, we did 16 states that year. Uh, in helping them in the whole process of redistricting. Um, and so as a result, I was traveling between each of those, um, taking the information that you guys had put, been putting together uh, and building the kind of databases that we started to be noted for. Um, and we, we, in 1990, um, also worked with um, Don Cook, up in Lyme, New Hampshire, with geographic data technology. Don was an early GIS uh, entity, um, used to be with the Census Bureau, started his own company. Don created the first, what I call, spatial spreadsheet. That is taking the map and putting a spreadsheet across the bottom of the screen so that when you drew on the map of, well, let's put this, precinct or this county or this whatever into District 6, the resulting spreadsheet across the bottom would update. So it was something that, hey, I didn't have to run it all night to figure out what was on the bottom of the spreadsheet there. We could see it immediately. And so as a result, while we created 10 plans in 1980 during the legislative session, we were creating 100 plans in 1990. And that continued to expand not only the capabilities of what could be done, but as computers got faster, PCs got faster, hard drives got bigger, we could add more data to the system. By the time we got to 2000, we were creating a thousand plans during the legislative session. And that continued to multiply with each decade. So now in 2020, uh, we were creating an enormous number of plan alternatives to see what was possible in terms of redistricting. The other day, a fairly prominent person came to me with the idea of automating the redistricting process. And I, and, and I uh, gently uh, sent him a lot of links to uh, various people who had had that idea in the past, and you'd already mentioned one of them going back to 1970, maybe. If someone asks you, like, to what degree can a program substitute for humans in drawing districts? I mean, nowadays, you can do this with machine learning, artificial intelligence. You could put in umpteen different variables, I assume. Talk a little bit about that the course of the automation of that process and what can be done and what can't be done. 
Well, having played with automation for a number of decades, um, I have continued to be firmly ensconced in saying that automation is not really the answer. You end up having so many different variables that you can't really decipher one or the other. And it really takes the human mind to look at and see, okay, I know I need to keep this guy in the district because, and I can't go over here because his girlfriend would be drawn out of the district. Um, and this over in this neck of the woods is where the, the Republicans or the Democrats are. And here's the minority members and from the census data, all of those kind of factors that come into play in the regards to redistricting is something that a human mind can keep track of and be cognizant of. I have yet to find a good automated program that does that. Automated programs can generate lots of different plan ideas, but many of those plan ideas, you're looking at at districts as snakes and spaghetti and not really looking at it from an overarching standpoint of different levels of geography. It's that different levels of geography that cause the automation programs to go awry. It's fine to be able to do it at the block level, but when you need to, to have a whole county here or a whole township there, or a whole set of precincts in this neck of the woods, that, that multiple levels of geography is something that automation programs, I have yet to find one that really can handle all of that kind of circumstance also. Yeah. As you built the company, you said you started with sort of like data collection and things that went under the title election data services, what did that expand to? So it sounds like there was redistricting consulting, redistricting databases, um, some help with drawing the lines. You also got into legal arena. I did get into legal arena. I have uh, been an expert witness in um, now upwards of uh, 85 different court cases over the past uh, uh, five decades. I get brought in and court cases, even if we had not been involved with drawing the districts. I just spent uh, two weeks up in Alaska uh, in a court case up there. I came came up to look at, at um, helping them challenge what the board of, of redistricting board had created. Um, so I'm, I get involved in a lot of other things. Um, and this legal side of things is something that ultimately um, is a kind of an ongoing circumstance. I just got finished with a court case that was started in, uh, well, I drew the plan in 2011. Uh, it wasn't challenged until 2018. And the court uh, case went on until 2020, when we were in the process of getting new census data. And yet the court was still involved. So these court cases tend to continue. As I always say, I'm still looking for my 1990 vacation. I haven't had that because all these court cases that keep me going. What, what do you do when you're in, involved in a court case? What's your role exactly and how do you fulfill it? 
Um, in many instances, it's looking at data and trying to analyze what took place and seeing um, what the data shows. When I get involved, um, I'm looking at recompiling the data that maybe the state had done and seeing if, if the state um, had incorrectly uh, compiled the data set or had not taken into account different ways of looking at the racial data that the Census Bureau has. Certainly the Census Bureau now has lots of different ways of looking at even the racial data. And so we've programmed that all into our data sets that we utilize when we're looking at that spreadsheet across the bottom of the screen in terms of the various makeup of African-Americans or Hispanics or Asians or whatever the case may be. All of those are factors that we build into our normal databases. And so when we get involved with a court case, we're uh, at the very beginning compiling that kind of information so that we can re-look at the plans that they have created uh, and look at different ways of looking at that. Uh, we have different programs to help us look at what, for example, we call an A versus B report. Uh, it's plan A uh, against a plan B. What is the difference uh, between those two plans? Or what is the difference between a plan and the county geography, which counties are split, and maybe township geography. All of those kind of things can be a quote-unquote a plan that lets us, uh, through this program, see where the comparisons could be and analyzing what has created this district. The year that I worked with you, you were essentially working for Democratic caucuses. It was a fairly partisan operation. How did it change over time with respect to working one side of the aisle or not? When you get involved with court cases, you need to be able to show that you're not a partisan hack. And so as such, um, I have staff people of both political persuasions so that we can show that we're a bipartisan entity that specializes in redistricting in providing the best uh, way of analyzing the data. I would be characterized as a Democrat. After all, I was Al Gore's expert witness in 2000 in Florida. That's probably as partisan uh, a makeup that you could have. But we have worked with both Republican and Democratic uh, legislatures and entities. We are truly a bipartisan entity. What else do you do through election data services nowadays? The other part is on the election administration side. We work with state and local governments. And once the plans have been created, the districts have been created, we work with the state, uh, uh, like the Secretary of State's office or a state election board, and the county governments, that they are the ones that have to implement the plan. They are... Uh, many times just given a, a set of paper maps. This is how your county is divided. Good luck on trying to figure out where those boundary lines are. And by the way, you need to update your street file in your voter registration system to reflect that. That's not an easy task. Street files in many voter registration systems are 
10,000 or 50,000 lines long, depending upon the size of the jurisdiction, trying to find uh, Emerywood Court to make sure that the voters in Emerywood Court are assigned to the right precinct and the right district. And it's fine to do that for Main Avenue or Main Street. It's got lots of different records, different uh, 100 blocks of, of Main Street. And so you can kind of follow along and, and make sure that you've got Main Street properly assigned. The problem is, is cul-de-sacs, like where I live on Emerywood Court. Cul-de-sacs uh, are one little record in, a, in those 10,000 lines of a street file. They're the record that gets missed. In many instances, the, the county clerk, um, it, it's not something that they're trained for catching. They hear about it, you know, later on in the decade when people come out by and say, wait a minute, I'm here in this little cul-de-sac and yet everybody around me is going down the street to, to the school to vote. And yet you're sending me, you know, five miles away to a different school to vote. Why is that? It's those kind of circumstances that now GIS can help tease out and help decipher and help correct. And so that's what we've been using the GIS capabilities now to help county and state election officials to make sure that they've got voters assigned to the right precinct and the right districts. Kim, you mentioned that helping Al Gore in 2000. Can you, what's the story there? <laughs> In 2000, if you remember, um, the election was very close. Um, I, like everybody else, watched intently on election night to see who won the presidency. Nobody got decided on election night in 2000. As that, uh, that election contest dawned into the next day and the next day, um, apparently a number of reporters we're starting to take a look at, well, what's going on here in Florida and why is this contest so close? And it looked as though there was circumstances dealing with different voting equipment and how those were counting ballots. A number of the press uh, ended up calling uh, the Federal Elections Commission to find out where is the punch cards being used? Um, and the people at the FEC said, well, we don't know exactly where they're being used. There's this crazy guy named Kim Brace that keeps track of this and what kind of voting equipment is used in every single county in the country. And he's had this database that he's been working on since the mid-70s. Press started calling me and started asking questions and what was going on and where is where is punch cards being used elsewhere around the country and what's been my experiences with them. It suddenly um, pulled us into the spotlight once again. And apparently that weekend, the courts down in Florida, uh, the judge had the attorneys in and said, all right, there's this whole thing about voting equipment. You need to get your experts uh, down here to come testify next week on voting equipment. And so we can try to resolve this case. And apparently the Gore campaign went back to their offices, the lawyers, and sat around trying to figure out, well, all right, the judge wants 
you know, this kind of an expertise. And, and one of the lawyers said, well, I don't know anything about voting equipment, but if you read all the headlines and the, the articles over this last week, there's always this guy named Kim Brace that's being quoted as being an expert on voting equipment. And one of the other attorneys uh, in the room that, that night um, said, Kim Brace, oh, I know him. He was my expert witness in Florida, in Miami, when we were doing redistricting. He's great. You need to get him right away. So I got a call that evening saying, you know, we, we'd like to talk with you and bring you on board. So they, they put a notice to the court that, you know, here's our people that we're going to have to testify next week. Um, and I was listed. Um, what was fascinating that Monday evening, Ted Koppel, if you remember the, the uh, night nightlight, light. Yeah. Um, Ted Koppel started with the quote, do you know who Kim Brace is? And do you know who X and Y was? And he said, you may not know their names, but by next weekend, they're the ones that are going to be testifying. Big moment for you. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I'm sitting here and, you know, looking at the TV and saying, oh, shit, what the heck is going on here? <laughs> so, yeah, um, but it was a, it was fascinating. Kim, was that to do with the, the butterfly ballot? People were erroneously voting for Patrick Buchanan in certain cases when they met Al Gore, it seemed like. And yep. we're talking about a statewide race settled by 500 votes. So, yep, yep. 535 votes. Yep. Yeah. Yep. What did you learn from that experience about our system and and kind of how it works when things are awfully close? Because clearly since then we've had our troubles. Um, yes, um, that is true. And it shows you that any kind of a contest could get close. And when it does, then there's more things to look at to see, is this a problem? The closer the vote, the more investigation needs to be done. And that's what we've done, be it on a redistricting cycle or an election contest cycle, looking at what... Um, what came into play in that contest uh, can be critical in terms of how, how that, that election result can be analyzed. From the standpoint of drawing districts, um, we're looking at close contests because they can give us a clue of, okay, in this part of the state, this is where it's more democratic. That part of the state, it's more Republican. You can start seeing that better with contests that are close. Contests that are overwhelmingly one or the other, you have less clues, yet you can still kind of see some of the leanings. After 2000, we passed the Help America Vote Act. A lot of money went into election administration. In the most recent one, there was even money coming from outside, from like Zuckerberg and other people like that to try to assist What's your sense of how well our election administration system works? Can people cheat? Do we get generally the right results? Do people are people able to vote as well as they ought to be? What's your view from inside about that? What you end up finding in, when you're on the inside is that um, surprisingly, election administrators 
are some of the best people that you could ever know. You end up seeing their whole makeup is trying to make sure that every vote counts, that every vote is counted, and it's counted correctly. That's their makeup. And that's how most election officials view their responsibility. It's an awesome responsibility, but it is something that you can see in talking with them and working with them. I really don't see them being able to swing elections one way or the other. Yeah, you can hear some things that some more partisan people might do and that sort of thing. But generally, there are an awful lot of checks and balances in the system. And that's what helps make the system work. If you don't have data, you can't really swing an election. You've got to have data and the process that, that we run our elections, where it's down at the precinct level, there is poll workers at that precinct. I serve as a poll worker. I have since 1980. I work with fellow poll workers as a poll worker. We, we make sure that the votes are counted on election night. We tally them up. We report out with paper tapes uh, what the results are from the machine. And that's cross-checked the next day um, through a certification process. That process happens in every single county in the country, all 3,000 counties. And it takes place even uh, on election night in the 180,000 precincts that we have in this nation. So trying to change the election results when you have so many data points, um, I don't see that possible. I can feel that this aspect of our democracy is really important to you and you've spent your life trying to, to make it work and assist in those processes. What does it mean to you when you see a leader like President Trump or candidate Trump takes such swings at the process and indicate that he thinks an election was stolen that wasn't. How do you view that happening in our democracy? It shows the absurdity of where he was. And we have clearly seen with everything that has continued to come out about him is the absurdity of his mentality in not paying attention to people, not knowing uh, the process, and basically being ignorant he was probably our most ignorant president that we've ever had in this country, which is too bad. I'm surprised that we elected him, and I hope that we don't have him running again, because I don't think that people, if they were given a choice again, would want to have the same thing happening. So we'll, we'll wait and see. Everybody has an opportunity. That's the American system. We'll have to to see what goes on over the next year. You, you've testified sort of to the character of people who do election administration, but there is an effort in some quarters to make that more partisan, to oust everything from Secretary of State on down that have tried to uphold the system, people of both parties. What do you think the prospects are for undoing 
the working system that we've had? Do you think that it's at big risk or or not really? Well, there there are some components that we probably have to be careful of. It's important to recognize there are different levels of responsibility. Basically, each state has either a secretary of state or a board of elections. Many times those secretary of state, they are elected through a partisan process. So you do have to recognize that this one is a Republican or this one is a Democrat in recognizing the process that they may put into place. That's only at the state level. Down at the county level, um, sometimes you get county-level officials elected um, from a partisan process, county clerks, for example. But a county clerk gets elected uh, because they uh, say that they're going to do a great job with uh, dog licenses or other kinds of things that are more important. You know, elections is one day out of 365 that suddenly they have to wear a different hat from an election that standpoint. Many times those county clerks have staff that have that nonpartisan um, person running the staff, and that's what's key. So you you need to be able to look at who is in the process um, and understand that it's a variety, um, but also understand that it's not one person up on the top of the process. There's not a federal election office that runs the elections in all 180,000 precincts or 365 counties in this country. There is lots of different people involved in it, and that's the way it should be. Um, Elections are local, um, and that's an important caveat that comes into play. Now, that means, unfortunately, that elections are subject to local funding. And that is the problem that we have seen over time is the question of it takes money to run elections. And the county clerk's office or the elections office are probably the most underfunded entity. If I'm uh, on the county board of supervisors, uh, you know, well, the, the elections office Heck, you only work two days a year. Why do you need all these people here if you're if you're only working two days a year? Um, people don't understand what election officials go through. It is so heavily involved with planning and making sure that things are going to run right because you only have that one day. We can't delay election day. Election day is going to happen. You have to be ready for it. And if you're not ready, you're going to have a disaster on your hands. But you can't come in and say, oh, well, I don't have all these precincts set up yet, so we'll hold the election next week. That doesn't work. That's not the way the American system runs. So election administrators recognize that and recognize that their day to shine is very short and they got to make sure that it's done right. There may not be much fudging ability when you're counting actual votes, but rules and regulations around who gets to vote, 
whether you need to not have an ID, what the rules are about registration, whether you can do a mail-in ballot, how many precincts there are that you can vote in with the location of ballot boxes, all kinds of things like that can be played with and, and sometimes to partisan effect to interfere with the process. And there's a lot of... But who's doing that playing? Well, sometimes it's the legislature, right? That's the key. Yeah. It is the legislative uh, body that is dictating that, that is setting up the laws, how that would run in their state. And so you have to take a look at, well, what is the political leaning of the legislature? Do you worry about, there have been a lot of laws now uh, subsequent to uh, 2020, to to change those regulations. There's also the interpretation of those legislations, legislate of that legislation, where sometimes you have the Secretary of State saying, "Oh, it's a pandemic. We sh- we need to make it easier to vote. We need to allow mail-in voting." Right? There is some leeway. Leeway, right? What's your general feeling about the? I don't know the strength of our democracy in responding to some attacks on whether the system works well and so much concern in the country about, uh, is it fair? Is there voter suppression on one side or are too many people being allowed to vote too easily on another? Where are you on all that? It is, um, something that people need to be cognizant of. There usually is not a magic answer. I, for one, since I work in elections and work as, you know, a poll worker, my first dicta is basically making sure that people have an opportunity to vote. That's what most election officials tend to look at uh, on that side. So um, all of these uh, different pieces of legislation that maybe the state legislature has foisted on the counties, you need to take a look at where that came from and what was behind that. It's not the county election official that is dictating this procedure or that procedure. In most instances, it's coming from the state legislature. So you need to be cognizant that that's coming into play. And by knowing then the partisan leaning of the legislature or the partisan leaning of the Secretary of State's office or whatever, you can get a feel for where people are coming from in trying to implement this procedure or implement that procedure. In the run-up to the 2020 redistricting, there were, on the congressional level, there was a lot of talk about Republicans having a big advantage because they controlled a lot more legislatures and governorships. And currently, if you read the newspapers, you hear the Democrats did better than expected and that maybe there hasn't been a big partisan change as a result of all the processes. There's still litigation going on. What, what's your sense of how it went, the 2020 redistricting cycle on a federal level? Um, you have to take a look at just not one decade. As I said, I've been involved in this process for 50 years. You need to look at the give and take that has taken place. What you used to have when Democrats controlled a state legislature, they created districts where in order to create a Democratic seat, you took maybe a little bit of African-Americans here, a little bit of Hispanics over there, 
liberal whites over there, put them together and you make a democratic seat. That is the way that democratic legislatures built their districts in order to create a democratic plan. In 2010, we had a sea change in this country. It was called the Tea Party. It was how this whole mix of who's drawing the process changed. Indeed, the Republicans took control in the 2010. So in going into the 2011 round of redistricting, all of a sudden it was a different set of hands on the mouse. Um, And as such, Republicans discovered that for them to draw districts, it's better for them to create the smallest number of minority seats, pack them all together so that you, you kind of submerge them there in a small number of districts, because then you have the surrounding suburbs that you can draw as Republican seats. And that's what they did in 2010, 2011, 2012. And it caused a wholesale sea change in not only Congress, but also state legislatures. And it worked for them for the entire decade. People weren't sure that it was going to, but you know, when you looked at the district boundaries and looked at the data, yeah, they, they were very smart about it in creating that kind of a, of a conflab of what makes up a Republican seat versus what makes up a Democratic seat. So now we're going into 2020 and how do Democrats counter that sort of thing? But unfortunately, in many instances, Republicans still had their hands on the mouse. They were still in charge of the redistricting in many more states than Democrats were. So as a result, what you're seeing in terms of the plans that have been created is it is a continuation of Republicanness in the drawing of the plan. Um, They may not have all the minorities in one little district. Maybe they'll divide it into two or something like that but it's still collapsing as much of the the Democratic vote as possible into the smallest number of seats. People always ask, well, is that partisanness or is it racial considerations? And I always answer, it's both. There is no way of taking race out of the mix of politics and no way of taking politics out of the process of redistricting. So it is both race and politics that govern the way that we draw districts these days. And as long as the, the hands that are on the mouse are Republican hands or Democratic hands, that helps dictate where, where the outcome is likely to be. Now, this time I was the consultant in the state of Michigan. Uh, state of Michigan was like many other states. They saw the sea change in 2011. Uh, Republicans drew those lines in 2011, 2012. And, um, uh, and they created heavily Republican seats on that side by packing the congressional seats in Detroit 
so that the those seats were 80 to 90 percent african-american as a way of then having bleached the remaining suburbs around macomb and oakland and that sort of thing what took place is that there was a citizens revolt in 2018 to talk about the problem with gerrymandering and it was a citizen-led referendum that was successful in the polls in 2018 to put into place a commission as opposed to the legislature to draw districts. And so we were the consultants for the commission and helped them through that process. Um, They've been criticized. They've had suits brought against them, all of that. But it was a process that was much more open We were drawing districts on the computer screen as people were watching on YouTube to see what was going on. And so it was a much more open process and something that people could understand what was going on. Um, So it it was a a real interesting way of doing things, um, a lot different than what other states have done. That may be a, a harbor of where things might go. Um, given that um, Democrats think they did a a little bit better there and Republicans don't like some of what the commission did, it'll have a partisan view on things uh, as we look in the impact. I remember an article by David Mayhew a bunch of redistricting cycles ago about the case of the vanishing marginals. How many fewer uh, congressional districts are close and how there sort of became a bimodal distribution with a lot of safe Democratic seats and a lot of safe Republican seats. And that process has kind of continued and even accelerated. Now you have not that many contested congressional seats in any particular election. Is that dynamic likely to continue or are there forces that might take it back the other direction? Because it does seem to be affecting who we get in Congress and, and how moderate or willing to compromise they are? Um, yes, that's a very accurate uh, observation. It goes back to, I think, the way that we, we have, have had different people's hands on the mouse. Um, when you create coalition districts, you create Democratic seats, and they tend to be a little bit more open to what is possible. When your hands are on a Republican mouse, you're creating polarizing districts. That is part of the problem that we've had for the past 10 years. We've created this total partisan split. Um, And I think it's more on what the Republicans have done in terms of drawing those kinds of districts. Um, And it is the the outcome of where they wanted to go in terms of the partisan leaning. We're seeing some of that in terms of the districts that are drawn this time. The talk about, oh, well, Democrats have actually done better. Um, I don't see that. I'm just as concerned that it is still the Republican hands on the mouse that is governing how that plan is drawn. You talked about the early days of your business when it was you or you and Dean and then going up to 29 people in 1990. And from talking to you other times, I know that 
the business has fewer employees of late. As a small business owner, what have you liked or not liked about uh, different sizes of businesses and what do you shoot for? Um, uh, good observation. 29 for me in uh, 1990 was too many, too many staff. I had to to manage staff as well as travel around the country. And it became so much uh, all-consuming that it convinced me that I didn't want to have as many staff. So when we went into the 2000 round, we were only in the like the 10 people staff-wise, uh, which was fine by me. I like going out and dealing with the clients, the customers, the states, and being able to talk with them on that side. I can do that much more effectively now with the computer capabilities that we have and how the databases are set up. So that makes it a lot easier to do that sort of thing. And it means that I don't need to have the the myriad of staff sitting back in the DC office pouring over with green eye shades like you were doing of the precinct maps and the census maps and all of that. It's a lot easier to build those kind of databases now. Um, the Census Bureau has helped out in that the Census Bureau has an expanded program that states can participate. And so as a result, from our standpoint, it means that redistricting contracts basically start in the year ending in five and continue through the remainder of the decade because we're helping the state compile the data that needs to go into the Census Bureau. We're helping the Census Bureau decide where the census block should be and how better lines could depict uh, a census block. We put into place a monumental effort this decade to make use of back property lines, which was never done before but it's a better way of looking at a neighborhood. With census boundaries previously being created by streets and, and streams and railroads, you tended to have areas that if you don't reflect that back property line, then you're off into another part, another neighborhood, and your data becomes kind of smudged. So, by putting into place back property lines, we can get better information, better data from the Census Bureau. The demographers in the states that we've implemented this are much more grateful because the ACS data and that sort of thing is, is a lot cleaner. So that's kind of part of where we've kind of built up all of that expertise to help state and local governments. I'm always interested in people who found a way to make a career out of their very specific interests, particularly if they did it in an entrepreneurial way where you can, to some degree, control your own destiny and choose the kind of work that you tackle and hire who you want and kind of do your own thing. And you're certainly someone who's done that about as long in the political data and tech space as anybody that I'm aware of. Do you have any observations about kind of entrepreneurship in the political arena and what you've learned or what you would tell a person who's young, say, who wanted to get into that about what works and what doesn't? From my standpoint, it's 
be your own person. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. I have been my own boss. I hated having bosses. As I said, I got fired from my first three jobs. And so uh, if I can't work for somebody else, I might as well do my own thing. It's the way that I've ended up um, moving forward on that side. Certainly from the standpoint of anybody looking to get involved in this kind of business, um, you need to really find your niche and be able to then act upon that. And hopefully you'll be successful. A lot of people, you know, end up starting a business and it fails at before five years. That was probably certainly a possibility for, for my company. Um, but from the standpoint of, of all the different things we were involved with, it kind of helped diverse ourselves in order to deal with the, the seasonal fray that comes into play. And heck, there's no bigger season than once a decade. So, you know, it's not not a year-by-year year basis on that side or every two years. That's a challenging type of business to run. When, when I look over your shoulder right now, I see a election results map that you've been producing since the mid-80s. Um, and, and when I worked there, I had taken a class in U.S. political geography back in college. I'd done projects already where I played with precinct maps and that kind of data. I always... Uh, you know, liked having going into an office and seeing your poster on the wall and uh, seeing the patterns that the the geography and elections make. Um, and you've continued to do that. What got you going on that? And what do you like about putting that out every year? We started that in 1986. We ended up shopping the idea around uh, and National Journal picked it up. So they were our first sponsors. We've done sponsorships with Roll Call, with National Conference of State Legislatures, a bunch of different entities, the Washington Post for a couple of years. Each two-year cycle, you know, it depends on who's going to be the sponsor and how many banners we have across the top. But we have control over how it appears, and we're always looking at innovative ways of showing data which is part of the reason why I've really liked what you have done in all of what you do. Um, I love your posters. Uh, if I had more wall space, I'd, I'd put up not only my posters, but your posters. I, I, I certainly think that one of the reasons I did do the time plots was because of the experience with you. And I remember working for you and thinking, how can I display all of the senators over time and playing around with some of the data they had then, and I didn't get to that for another twenty years. But I, yeah, <laughs> and I mean to send you copies of mine after we do this interview. Um, but it's kind of a fun thing, and and you've tried other things over time. I remember you had a a book of election data. Nowadays, one doesn't really put things out in book form as much or printed form. What else are you up to currently? What occupies your time? What occupies my time these days is um, going to airports and figuring out what, where I'm going to next on that side. What's, what's coming up next for you? Um, maybe I'll get my 1990 vacation now. <laughs> I don't know yet. We're heavily involved up in Rhode Island. The legislature passed the bill that we had, had drafted for them and worked with them on. 
Um, and now we're putting it into play for the towns. And so we're, we have contracts with uh, more than half of the towns in the state of Rhode Island to help them with either their ward boundaries or their precinct boundaries and updating their street files. So that's consuming us right now. And that'll continue through probably midpoint of the summertime. And then maybe, um, maybe I could go back to Alaska and not have uh, 18 inches of snow like, like it was in, uh, in January when I was last up there. I don't know. <laughs> By my count, you've been doing the company for 44 years which makes you at least 54 years old. Uh, how about 72? How much longer are you going to keep doing this, Kim? What keeps you going? Um, uh, that's a good question. Um, uh, I, I imagine that this probably would be my last swan song this round. Who knows what I'm going to do next? I, you know, I don't know. Um, uh, I, you know, I've, I've often thought about uh, getting an RV and traveling around the country. I've gotten heavily into uh, history. I'm chairman of the Historic Commission for the Prince William County. As such, um, I'm in charge of making those historic markers. That gets back to when my parents would pack all four of us kids in the car and, and you know go touring around Colorado or Wyoming or Utah. And my dad would always stop at those road signs. And as kids always do, dad, come on, don't stop one more time. It's another road sign. What are you going to learn? You know, I'm sure he's, he's up there in heaven saying, well, now see, you're doing those road signs. And that's why it's important. So um, it's, it's the history that is what really has intrigued me, you know, starting from kicking that Roman pot in Beirut, Lebanon, and continuing that kind of history. I've gotten heavily into Civil War history. I've gotten heavily into American history. And because I'm a geographic nut, I'm always interested in where things occur. Um, and that's what makes the creation of those signs that say, you know, this may be a parking lot now, but there was a battle that took place here, or there was a, an event that took place here. Don't forget that. I think we're all connected in ways that we sometimes don't even think about with our country and its geography. I, I, even with this war going on in Ukraine, I think about how those people are you know, at the mercy of big forces and have the ability to affect things on an individual level. They're changing road signs to try to divert the tanks. You know, it's that relationship we have with how we're governed, th that place that you've found for, for yourself over time is, is an important one, even in, in a small way that most people play. What would you like to be remembered for, for this career you've built? Oh, I'll probably be remembered for being the the prince of gerrymandering, as has been quoted in in the uh, daily shows. Uh, but you're not. That's not really you, right? That's no, that's not. If you could characterize yourself rather than having somebody who wants to get clicks, put it down. What would you say? 
someone that was heavily involved in the process and a strong believer that you need to get in on the inside. You need to understand the mechanics of how the process runs. And then you can end up, as I did in the 1980s, if you're in on the inside, you have a chance. But if you're on the outside, then you're just throwing mud at the wall. Um, Get on, on the inside and make a difference. That's what's key. Kim, is there a question I didn't ask you that I should have? You've done a good job. I've uh, unveiled a whole bunch of things to, about myself that you've you've been able to bring out. We'll see how much editing you need to do on this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's been a, a great pleasure to catch back up with you. And I'm proud of the connection I have with you back from 1990. And I wish you luck in what goes forward. Well, I thank you and thank you for your background and what you brought to helping election data services when you were with us. <laughs> well, thank you for that. That was Kim Brace. Kim is at electiondataservices.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.